0: I'm back home. I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'm back home in the United States. I'm really, really tired. I got in about 36 hours ago, but I'm really happy to be here. And the weather here in beautiful Portland, Oregon is blue skies, green trees, soft breezes, sunshine, and it was that way in England as well. I had some wonderful days. I did some hiking in the um, what's called the lakes, my favorite place in the world. And, uh, and I got really tired, but I got some sleep and I'm back. And I have what I hope is going to be an exciting show for you today. One of the things I like to do is when I come back from a travel, uh, to kind of put together what I learned there. You know, what what kinds of things that I see strengthened in terms of people doing things what I consider to be the right, the right way or at least uh, an exciting new way. And what kinds of things were strengthened in terms of I've become uh, more convinced about the things I already believe in. So it was a good trip from that point of view. And today's show is called Rumination Rumination Spokes of a Wheel. And uh, I have just a few things to say. Oh, you know, I forgot to say. Excuse me. Welcome to the visual workplace. Welcome to the Visual Workplace, our weekly radio show. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I am your host. This show is about letting the workplace speak. My goodness, I've been too long away. The Visual Workplace is about embedding performance into the landscape of work. It isn't just showing performance, listing performance, counting performance, It is about embedding performance, embedding what is supposed to happen so that it does happen, and we embed that through visual devices or systems of devices, which we call visual systems, visual mini-systems. We do it intentionally. We design our environment so that it speaks to us, and it speaks to us in a voice that we recognize, a voice that tells us the things that tells us the things that we need to know or shares the things that we need to tell others. So, if you are acquainted with any of my books or any of my methodologies, at the center of it is this idea of what do I need to know, what do I need to share? And because of the I in that, what do I need to know? I call this an I-driven methodology. And that's really the heart of the information coming out that, is, uh, that populates the environment as visual devices. It is an actual need to know what I don't know right now in order to do my work and a need to share what others need to know that I know that I need to share in order for them to do their work, do their work more safely, more completely, with greater joy, whatever it is, to take the struggle out. Take the struggle out for me. Take the struggle out for you. So welcome to The Visual Workplace. That's what this show is about. We are in our 90th show today, our 90th show. We're not at 100, but we're getting pretty close. Our 90th show, we have, as I might have told you, about 70,000 people listening every month. That's been going on for over a year now, and I'm very, very pleased about that because, for me, The Visual Workplace is the greatest thing since hot bread with butter melting on it. I think that it uh, it has, it is um, a joy. It is a joy. It's a joy for me to work in it and to learn more about it by doing it and by teaching others and to watch it spread. So welcome. I will, uh, so I'm back in from England and I go back again the second week in July. I'll just make a few announcements now. I'm going to be Uh, conducting a leadership workshop at the University of Buckingham at the Lean Conference that's under the leadership of John Pacino, who is one of the uh, thought leaders in in England. Uh, He and uh, a colleague of his wrote a book called The Lean Toolbox, which you can get on Amazon, and he's invited me to uh, do a session, and I will also be presenting during the conference proper, I look forward to it. Um, The thing about the English um, audience and participants and workforce, and it really is quite remarkably um, different, is that people have a real appreciation of thinking and of thinking more completely. And it shows in our conversations, it shows in the depth of the work that we're able to do together. It is quite a special national characteristic. So, and I will also mention that when I was there this last time, I just got home two days ago, I visited, I beg your pardon, while I will be there in July, I will visit one of my favorite clients, Hotel Chocolat, Hotel Chocolat in Cambridge. Uh, about forty five minutes north of London, and all I can say is "Yum. This is a completely vertically integrated supply chain where they grow their own chocolate and <laughs> I saw them this time, and uh, they, they they gave me a bag of chocolate, a bag of boxes and boxes of chocolate. I gave away all but one. I have one box left it 's hidden in my closet. I know exactly where it 's hidden. And I had about four pieces of it just before the show, and it was so good. So let me see other news. Well, I wanted to tell you that Visual Workplace Visual Thinking, my book that is an overview of the Visual Workplace, is actually out on Kindle, and it is out as of yesterday. I'm sorry. I thought it was going to be out two months ago. We ran into terrific problems in terms of the technology. It's not available, doesn't work for Macs that well. That was one of our struggles. So we're not advising Mac users to buy it yet, but it does work beautifully on the regular uh, Kindle. And that book is also available on demand, both through Amazon, if not today, then by the end of the week. And I'm sorry for the delay. As I have often said to people who are implementing, it is the start that stops us. It is the start that stops us. Once we get going, we can keep going. And it was in, it was so in this case as well. My um, other books will come out in the next couple of months, Smart Simple Design, Visual Systems, Work That Makes Sense. We tried to get that out in March, April, and May. We're running into technical difficulties. It will be available on Kindle and on demand throughout the world. And we think it will take about another two or three weeks. I'm so sorry. But I have a lot, a lot of work planned for this summer, um, and I will be able to get it done. I really want to, and I promise. And so now, I think that's the end of the announcements. That's all we need to talk about on the other stuff. Let's begin ruminations. And I'm calling it ruminations spokes of a wheel because I want you to understand that whatever you're doing, you're moving in the right direction. Even if nobody agrees with you, and even if it looks like the wrong direction, it's like spokes of a wheel. You're moving in one direction, and the person across from you looks as though they're moving in opposition, but in fact, you're both moving towards the center, your spokes in the wheel. And all around the hub of the wheel, all around the rim, everyone is moving towards the center, even though it sometimes looks as though they're not. They are. So you should have uh, confidence in what you're doing. You're learning, and you are also moving in the right direction, honest, honest, honest. If you make a change, you're also moving in the right direction. Okay? Have confidence in in yourself and in your thinking. As long as you are thinking, have confidence in your life. Your life is a lot smarter. I find that my life is a lot smarter than I am. And sooner or later, it gets me to do what it wants me to, even though kicking and screaming I am along the way. I also want to mention, by the way, that we will resume our march through the visual wear in about two weeks. I have to go to Mexico next week for the launch of our new pokeoke for a major multinational biomedical conglomerate. And uh, I'm very excited about that. We've been working on this since February, and we're finally launching. After I get back, Uh, we will resume addresses. We'll go into quite a bit of depth on addresses the way we did on Borders. Now, is this the third time I've said let's begin ruminations? I think it is. Spokes of a wheel. (laughs) Ruminations. Ruminations, in this case, are the things that I did or saw or understood across this last trip to England. And it wasn't because... It was England. It's because, and you may, may have noticed this as well, when we travel, we kind of get a dose, a new dose of things. We get a new take on things. We get away from the pressures of running our normal daily life, whether or not it's family or business. That kind of falls away. And we get to do the trip. And we know that when we leave our normal patterns that they get a, our normal pattern loosens up in us because of the traveling. And we get to kind of see things with, if you want to say, fresh eyes or new eyes, with more vitality. And since I always always am involved in manufacturing, continuous improvement, visuality in the workplace, I got to see some things I already knew, and I got amplified in it or shocked. Okay? I got to meet A lot of people, a lot of new people. I admire both sets. I'm beginning to admire the new people. I'm admiring the old, the people I know already even more. I'm admiring you. What you are doing is important. Please keep doing it. So ruminations have to do with the fact that I see people in their sincerity face their dreams in the context of the day-to-day challenges of whatever stands in their way. Sometimes those are tangible challenges. I saw plenty of tangible challenges, problems with the things of the workplace. And sometimes the barriers are in thinking. The barriers are in the mindset. And other times, the barriers are, well, you just don't know. You don't know what they are. You just know you're stopped. So I want to talk today about some of those stronger experiences that I experienced over the last two weeks with not enough sleep. Some of them were really excellent encounters. I've divided up our conversation into four themes. They're connected because they happened within the same time frame. That's why I call them ruminations. They're like, it's like a cow that ruminates. Cows ruminate what they, what they have chewed and they rechew. What they've already eaten. They partly swallow it, they bring it up, they rechew it, they pull up the cut again, and they give it a final chew before letting it fall into their belly and onward. And that's sort of the way it is for me. I get a chance when I come back to review or rechew these experiences and get a little bit more nourishment out of them and kind of put them in their place before they and before I move on. So the four things are. Number one, LCD versus hands-on displays. I've got a lot to say about that, including metrics. Number two, CI specialists. Number three, I'm going to call the elephant in the room, which is time. And number four, spokes in the wheel. So uh, we're going into our first break in just a second. And when we come back, we will begin with this whole notion, whole group of people that i i i met um i beg your pardon we're going to begin with this first theme which is lcd displays versus hands-on displays big controversy about that so much time spent on that so i will be right back and i will pick up from there thanks
1: To business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website, again, is visualworkplace.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: Part of our show at the Visual Workplace today. Today we're doing some ruminations. I'm sharing with sharing with you some of the uh, themes or the ideas or the understandings that I collected over my trip to England over the last two weeks. We have four themes of four ruminations. One of them is about LCD displays versus hands-ons. Second one is about CI specialists. The third is about time, the elephant in the room. And the fourth, I want to say a few more things about this idea of spokes of a wheel, which is what we all are. That's my view on it. So let's talk about LCD displays versus hands-on. People get very, very excited about the big LCD display that is sitting on the production floor or maybe it's uh, in your... um, Offices fine, showing you your sales figures versus your quotes versus your uh, latest campaigns, et cetera. Maybe your collectibles even as well. But there is a big display that pretty much everyone can see, even though it's out of out of the line of sight for it can be out of the line of sight for some people. The display is there in beautiful colors and it changes at a certain pace. And it's full of information. Sometimes these displays also show the birthdays and what's going on at the site. But it, it, it also presents performance data. People get excited because they can see it. They can see. They can see the numbers. But we have to ask ourselves what is really going on when they do this. And this came home to me several times during the trip. The first, in one of the several factories that I saw, there was a huge display for machine uptime and machine downtime and machine availability and what it was running. 2025 machines. And it gave very good feedback at a glance on what was going on, what was available, what was in preventive maintenance, and the screen lit, lit up. It was the same screen But the screen showed the dynamic changes in these uh, states of the machinery, of the equipment. And people got very excited about it. I should say the um, plant manager got excited and the operation shifts, chiefs got excited about it. But from what I could see, that display really represented a barrier a barrier in the further exploration of something that I have seen absent in many, many plants, and that is cause. That it prevented the further investigation of cause. It gave a strong data point, and from many points of view, sharing that information, the machine was available or was not available, was the point and of course it isn't the point if we see a machine is not available we want to know why and if we see that it is down we want to know why and I call that causality and I've been working in this field now over 31 years going on 31 years in a few months so a long 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 time and honestly it occurred to me not more than 5 weeks ago which is really recent that what Toyota is about, and the great factories and companies of the world, they are about causality. They are about cause. They are about the causal chain. They are about the subtle, powerful connection between effect and what causes it, the outcome and what causes it. And that is what is threaded through. All of your value stream mapping, all of your uh, A3s and your other tools. They are all tools to dig into or reveal cause. This is like it's hidden in plain sight. And when I saw the LCD boards, and I saw three, four of them while I was away, it hit me again and again that in a way these boards mask causality. They don't lead us to causality. They replace our interest in causality. The plant, in a way, these plants, in a way, come to depend on the board for direction. And because it's two-dimensional, in fact, and not embedded, it can't give direction. I mean, think about your GPS and that very smart lady who lives inside. She knows Everything and listening to her, you can get from point A to point R. But if she's quiet, or if you don't have an, uh, a GPS, you're stuck. And it isn't just that you're stuck, it's that this is what I've observed in myself I no longer think, I no longer. Notice milestones around the, w- along the way. I no longer pay attention to the routing that gets me to point, from point A to point R. Believe me, I need the GPS, especially in England where everything is just a kind of paved cow path and they all have different names and they take you to who knows where. I love the GPS, but I have also noticed that my thinking stops, that I become tethered to this voice so that if I can't hear, for a moment, I panic, instead of being able to self-orient. Limited usefulness, but more than that, what is it that it takes away? It's like the KPIs, and I'm getting on my soapbox here, but I'm becoming, I'm kind of convincing myself about this, that KPR KPIs are really a problem. Not just that there are so many of them, but that The KPIs actually give us a sense of having information, but that we can't act upon it. We become collectors of information. KPIs are, perhaps you could think of them as lists, lists of performance. And unless we take the step of operationalizing those lists, we might as well be collecting teacups or butterflies, dead butterflies at that, because... People who collect butterflies don't collect live butterflies. I've never met anyone who does. These dead butterflies, these dead bodies, as Shingo would say, the metric of what has already happened, what has already died. The body is dead. It is cold. So, you know, I'm saying this to you because it came home to me again that I'm beginning to think that KPIs constitute a step backwards in our march towards operational excellence. We got excited about them about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, when they came on the scene, and one of the big marketing pieces about them was simply KPI, it was so easy to say. It was, you know, really catchy, really easy, key performance indicators. One of the systems that a multi-conglomerate who attended one of my public seminars of 25,000 people across across a whole huge range of sites they have many many data collection systems they are machine driven asset driven but one of their systems collects 10,000 data points every hour and the plant that this particular system is in is not particularly well run in fact one gets a sense of neglect in that plant, even though there's all this data, hmm? Because somehow the data, the data, the data. I go back and forth. The data, the data, the data has substituted somehow for change, for improvement, for transformation. This is very subtle, but please be aware of it. At Toyota causality is hidden in plain sight that's one of the reasons why so few things so few processes are actually tied to causality but it used to be at sumitomo at toyota akibono break you would march down that causal chain and you would use powerful problem solving techniques that would allow you to march down that causal chain i'm going to go into uh discussion of that I think I already did with scoreboarding about two years ago I think I may bring that up again so if I would say to you if a KPI is not changing because it is your focus to change it continue to collect it if your boss wants you to but if he doesn't remove it if your boss isn't on you to collect those KPIs remove it if you keep a KPI choose one of them And make it cough up its secrets, because the KPI has secrets, and it has to do with cause. And here's what you do. We did this several times over the last two weeks, and I saw it work again and again and again. You take a KPI, which will have an incident of six things. This happened six times over the last day, over the last hour, over the last month, over the last week. And you look at that nexus between how many times and when, the two axes, and you simply ask this question, what's in that dot? What's in that dot? What's in that nexus point? What's in that crossroads between frequency and time? That is where the secrets lay. And that, I will tell you, that plan I just described with 25,000 people in one system collected 10,000 data points every hour. The CI staff, those guys were so sincere. They were prominent in the group, but they struggled for a way to make a contribution, to initiate some true deployment in the face of these LCD screens and this collection of KPIs. It was as though the KPIs were the enemy. And you know what? I'm going to encourage you to think of a KPI as the enemy. Don't tell your boss. Until you figure out how to make him a friend. Okay? I mean, you know, the thing is, you've got to get people's heads out of those display screens. They are worse than computers because these, ju- these uh, screens just flicker they don't really allow you, even when they allow you to enter. What do you do as a result? What do you really do? It's like a college student who watches the washer go around and around and around and around. And they'll do that for four years until they're ready to go out into the real world. So I am not a fan of LCD um, uh, displays unless they are combined with a lot of very solid problem solving standards improvement of standards going down the causal chain and that's what i have to say on this thing and this rumination that i've had boy i've been cooking on this one for a number of years and i kind of convince myself again every time i encounter it i am not a fan I I want to encourage you not to buy the marketing of these, but ask yourself, are they going to help us improve? Hmm? Just because you're collecting data doesn't mean you're changing data. So that's the soapbox for this section. We're going into a break now. I'll have a new soapbox as soon as you come back. See you in a minute.
1: Business Community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, Visual Workplace Expert and Award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly thirty years of hands-on experience, Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website, again, is visualworkplace.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: Segment of our show today of the visual workplace. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I am your host and I welcome you. We are talking about embedding information into the living landscape of work so that we can embed our performance. And today, in particular, I'm going through just a kind of set or a series of ruminations, of thinkings, of thoughts that I've had over the last couple of weeks when I was away from the office and into my favorite place in the world, the workplace itself, and seeing how visuality was being expressed and captured and also where it wasn't in place. And it was very interesting, as usual. I encountered a number of very, very fine people. I mean, everyone was fine. But in particular, in... in um, the factories that we went to and the sessions that we ran, there were some very good thinking, very good issues that came up. And I I just went over one of them. And in this section, I hope to go over another. The first one was about, um, the LCD display and how to use them in a way that actually promotes improvement instead of numbs it. And, uh, And in this section, I want to talk a little bit further on our second theme, and that is the continuous improvement function or the CI specialists. I meet many of them every time. They are so impressive. You are so impressive. You know so much. You know so much, and you make a huge difference in the way that your plants work but sometimes you're not completely satisfied with the result, and sometimes there are barriers. One of the things that I have noticed about CI specialists is that they often, how can I say this? In general, CI specialists, continuous improvement people, know more than anybody else at a site and sometimes more than anybody else across the enterprise, in terms of what needs to change, what direction good is in, and also how to get there. They know it. They are usually not also the leaders or the holders of the resources, so they have to work through others. One of the pieces that has been pretty easy for continuous improvement people to grab hold of is the idea of empowerment and the idea of ideas, fresh eyes, creative thinking. In this, CI specialists, and I'm just going to use that term to include everyone who is involved in some form of continuous improvement, whether it's focused on the machine, whether it's in a hospital whether it has to do with assembly work, some form of improvement. Perhaps you're specializing in 5S, you're still specializing in improvement. But they have a wider responsibility. You have a wider responsibility. Your job is to make sure that people learn, learn what you know. And for them to learn, you have to help people learn to think. You have to learn, you have to help them learn to think. And it is on this point, it's a little bit subtle, it's a kind of sub point, that I want to share some of my impressions from the specialists that I've met over the last two weeks and also over the last 30 years, especially over the last five or six years. A lot of CI specialists have gotten the idea that breakthrough means getting people into a room throwing out a question or a challenge or a problem and waiting to see what they do with it. Will they bite? Will they come up with something great? Will they have an innovative idea? Will it change everything? And often they do. Often people do because of who we are. We have this tremendous internal power. We are also usually working in organizations that put some premium on improvement so we have found our voice, and we have seen improvement happen, and we get the idea. But I want to say to CI specialists that you can do a few things that will amplify this and really make your contribution substantial instead of coincidental. And by coincidental, I mean that when you bring – this sometimes happen, I'm not say, happens. I'm not saying it happens with you, but it sometimes happens. That you bring people together, and because your experience has been, they're going to come up with ideas, you, you've grown to depend on it. But what I want to say for you to do instead is something simple, and that is before you bring people into the room, that you go through your own cycle of creative, innovative, breakthrough thinking on the very problem, the very challenge you're going to be presenting. I'm going, to, I'm saying, do your homework. If you do your homework and you do it as though you were responsible for coming up with the ideas, you will both experience that it is hard or you may experience that it's easy, but you will have had the experience of what it's going to be like for others. As importantly, if you do this thoroughly, you will know what the minimum outcome will be. And it will be that outcome that you thought of because you will treat your ideas in a way minimally. You'll say, listen, this is what I say. If I thought of this, a little application using the methodology that I've been promoting that I'm going to be reteaching or reinforcing tomorrow, and I came up with this idea, wow, that's going to be the lowest common denominator. That's going to be at least, at the least of what's going to happen. And because I know that, because I did my homework in advance, that is the nature of homework, you do it in advance of the session, I'm going to be able to coach for at least that level, to coach, not to tell, not even to lead, but rather obliquely, sideways, getting people to think at least of what I thought of, and with the the synergy of those other minds and those other internal forces, I'll bet we're going to come up with something that I never even imagined, maybe, that has never been seen on the planet before. And that had brought was brought home to me many, many times. And I realized I must have met 20, 30 people, at least, who had the responsibility for continuous improvement at their site and what I was struck by maybe by coincidence or maybe this is the way it is is that they hadn't thought of this before that they don't usually do their homework before a session they know their tools they know their outcomes they know how to work with people they know how to facilitate and they depend on that profile to get them through as compared Saying, what would I do if I were in this case? One never does that in order to show off or to promote your idea of what is right or what should happen. That would just be slipping back into the traditional mode of telling people instead of helping them learn and helping them learn to think, you know, creating a new competency. Remember, Ono said, Taichi Ono said, people don't come to Toyota to work. They come to think, and he was very proud of that achievement. Very proud that under his watch, people actually used their minds and used it in a way that dominated the workplace, wasn't a coincidence and didn't happen every now and again, but actually was their presenting um, approach. That, that was who they were. These people had the, people were thinkers at Toyota. Your responsibilities, friends, is to help people learn, and they can only learn if they learn to think. But that doesn't mean that you need to be absent from that process. They don't need to do that in isolation with you. That's part of the coaching function, to ask those oblique questions, even if it is, hmm, we were sitting at a table once where we were doing uh, a group was doing a layout, and they were doing it in a test area, and all the walls were used. Everything was up against the wall. Why? Because the walls were there, and I knew it because I'd encountered that before, and I had gone to their test area the night before, and I realized that they were stuck in a kind of tribal notion of if there's a wall, let's push something push something up against it, and they and went to their, their table and looked at there they were doing a map and I said you know what there's something else here I don't know what it is was I lying then maybe because I did know what it was I don't know exactly what it is but I know that you can find it and I'm going to ask you to do this in order to find it I'm going to come back in about four minutes and I want nothing against the wall Nothing against the wall. You are not allowed to use the wall. Would you be agreeable to that? They looked at me cross-eyed, and because they liked me, I had been charming over some part of our time together. They said, oh, okay, Gwenny, we'll do it for you. Nothing against the wall. I'll be back in five or six minutes. And so they moved everything away from the wall, and they had this great breakthrough, better than what I had originally imagined which was to use the center of the room and they were able to establish a flow on their their testing units. They were able to let these testing units flow through the space instead of get stuck in the bottlenecks of the corners. That's what I mean by doing my homework. I did my homework and I saw what they were up against and I determined that at a minimum there was going to be a certain level of outcome. We were not going to use the walls And I wanted to see what they did with this. I didn't tell them to do it. I did it obliquely. You can do it obliquely by saying just like, "Hmm, I don't know. I just don't know. I I just feel there's something else in there. I don't know. I don't know. Can you help me find it? There's something. Find it. There's something else in there. I'll bet my bones on it. So you're using your personality. You're being crafty. You're being a little oblique and you're getting what you know will be the beginning of a breakthrough. And the satisfaction of people using their own brain muscle to come up with it, whether individually or in a team. I'm a great, great fan of that. And so that's my rumination around the continuous improvement function. It's really, really important for you to do your homework. That's the big deal here. Okay, and I'll have talk about the elephant in our last section and a little bit about the wheel, spokes of the wheel. See you in a moment.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Back to the program.
0: Hi, hi again. Hi, it's Gwendolyn. Welcome back to the Visual Workplace. This is our final segment for today, a day on rumination, spokes of a wheel, where I'm kind of sharing some of the insights that I've had or the strengthenings that I've had related to my uh, trip to the UK where I did a lot of teaching and a lot, a lot of side assessments, site assessments that would... They really, you know, when you walk across a plant, you know pretty much everything about that plant. It's all there in the physicality of the plant. There might be some detail that's not immediately available, or there might be no detail available because the plant is not visual. But you know a great deal by walking across the plant. So I was in a plant, and I named, this is our our third thing, I was able to see an elephant in almost every cell. It's sort of like that elephant in the room thing when there is a question or a issue that nobody wants to talk about but is standing there in your living room while you have tea or you have some lemonade and you watch television and pretend it doesn't exist. And the elephant in the room in this and in many sites that I look at is the elephant called time. Time. We are involved when we are marching towards excellence in a time-based approach, a time-based strategy. And it has to do with an awareness of time as a resource. An awareness of time as precious and as countable. Remember we began today's show talking about the LCD display and KPIs. But it's really time, and we're not talking here about on-time delivery. We're talking about time like it's some kind of farina or pudding that's filling up the cell that has tangibility to it that it's there as the environment itself. If, if you could see air molecules, you would see time suspended in that cell and being consumed by that department. And what I've noticed is that in companies that are not driven by improvement, time will be hanging around in pools There will be no um, enterprise-wide awareness and therefore no cellular or departmental awareness of time as a resource. Changeover times will be long out of habit. No one will think there's anything wrong with a 45-minute changeover, no matter what that machine is. Nobody will mind when a mole takes 12 minutes to heat before you can begin the process. Nobody will mind waiting for a quality check that takes another 12 minutes because, well, quality is important to us and to our customer. There'll be this kind of density about time instead of an acute awareness. Even if you're not able to reduce your changeover time from 45 minutes to 43 minutes even, let alone 30, let alone 18, in a plant that has in a factory that has in a workplace that has awareness about time there's an edge there is the awareness that we're using up a precious resource we'll have a different way of looking at struggle we will see struggle as a robber as a thief taking time away from us time where we can either be involved in creating community with our fellow employees or doing our work. Or thinking innovatively. As you know, 3M, I'm sure you've heard this, gives everyone a day off every week. I'm pretty sure this is the way it works, if I have my numbers right. But it's something like this. Just to give them time for their brains to relax and for, them to, for people to explore things, period. To give that rest. We're still... Understanding time as a resource. Mm? And if you don't develop an awareness of time, then you have no leverage. You will be stuck with the tribal think, with habit, with tradition, and also without excitement. Mm? This is the worst kind of self sufficiency when you think that you are sufficient, that the way things are is sufficient then it turns into a real problem. So you have to notice time. And the way that I've encountered this, well, in this particular, one particular plant where there was this long wait for quality and a long wait for molds to heat, believe it or not, they had a capacity problem. But the two things had not been hooked together. And what there was also was a kind of lethargy in the workforce, a kind of... um, nonchalance which does not go well with thinking it wasn't the kind of nonchalance that we feel when we're just resting and trying to recuperate it was a nonchalance of not being connected and I remember when I attempted to introduce time into a wonderful trailer assembly company in Holland all I wanted and I want you to think about this all I wanted them to do was to put up a clock in one particular our experimental cell Put up a clock. Put up just a simple battery-run clock and let it be part of the work environment without much uh, uh, fanfare, just to set it up there. Because I wanted us to begin to move in the direction of pull, in the direction of time as a governor, tack time, and I couldn't do that unless people were aware of time. It took four months to get that darn clock mounted. I remember I asked for it in October. didn't happen in November. In December, well, Christmas is coming. And in January, maybe I told you about this before, I called the coordinator. I used to go every quarter. And I said, look, you son of a, and I used a really bad word. I said, you get a clock in there. or And then I threatened him in a way that was very unattractive. This guy was very elegant He got the clock up in place He sent me a picture I said send me a photo You've got 24 hours But he wrote me a little note It was written in French And it said Let me see if I got it right It said C'est le ton que fait la musique My accent is terrible C'est le ton que fait la musique It means It's the tone that makes the music He was very upset Because I had a harsh tone And I thought You know what I got the clock up. That's good. We've had a breakthrough moment. (laughs) So please look to see if you have introduced time. And if time is not a part of the leveraged thinking of the people that you are involved with, either as a leader or as a continuous improvement specialist or as a supervisor or as the person, him or herself, you just say to your boss, Hey, boss, do you mind if I bring a clock in? I want to kind of build my awareness of time. I want to get more leverage in my work. I want to work on the edge. I want things to be a little edgier here. Huh, do you mind? I'd like to do that. Do that for yourself. And be so I only have a minute late, Matt just told me. I mean, I only have a minute left, and I need to talk about spokes on the wheel. I want you to really accept what you're doing as courageous, accept what you're doing, whatever you're doing as a contribution and understand that each and every other person that you're working with is doing the same thing, is making a contribution as best they can to the work life and maybe even the improvement of the workplace. But like you, that other person is a spoke on that wheel and like you, that other person is moving towards the same center. And in that center is increased profitability, is increased stability, is continuous improvement, because that is the compelling center. And it is also a a, a movement towards personal contribution, maybe not as great as yours, or maybe greater than yours right now. But the center of that wheel is unity. And it is that unity, that allows us to be on the same path even though we may seem to be coming at it from opposite directions please continue doing what you're doing it is important and we'll talk about some more things the next time at the visual workplace had a wonderful time with you today be careful of that marketing you know it's it's attractive but it's a pretty deceptive thing question think and I will uh, talk to you in two weeks. We'll have an encore performance next week, something good. I'll look for something juicy. It's been a real pleasure. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm signing off. Thanks.
1: We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. 4 p.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening.